It is good to be able to be together and to worship God this evening. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms tonight, and we're going to be studying through Psalm 25. Psalm 25. As we begin to consider this psalm, it is good for us, I think, just to take a moment to think about the concept of disappointment. We have all been disappointed at times in our lives. That, of that, there is no doubt. And we all know that the pain of disappointment can be sometimes extremely difficult to bear, especially when we are talking perhaps about someone whom we love. Maybe they have let us down in some way because of some choices that they have made or maybe a direction that they have chosen to to travel in their life. Maybe someone whom we trust, we put a great deal of emphasis and trust. We depend upon them and they let us down for whatever the reason may be. Maybe someone that leaves us out in the cold wondering why we ever trusted them in the first place. We all know the pain of disappointment, the difficulty of having placed all of our confidence and all of our care and all of our trust into the hands of someone only to stop and watch as that person destroys every ounce of that which we have given them. We recognize, I think, collectively that in this world, there are many things, and unfortunately, there are many people, even if it's not on purpose, that are going to disappoint us. But the good thing, the the great thing, the blessing, is that we know that we serve a God who never will. Instead, we serve a God who is a faithful guide and protector. We serve a God who is good and who is upright, and we serve a God who is worthy of our trust. He is a God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews chapter 13. He is a God who has promised that all things will work together for the good, for those who love him and are called uh, called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. He is a God who has promised to hear us when we cast our cares upon him, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 7. And he is a God in whom we know that when we invest ourselves into his care, that we can never doubt, or we should never doubt, not even for a moment, that he'll always have our best intention at heart. He is a God in whom is found the only adequate foundation for living a worthwhile life. And brothers and sisters, that really is the point of Psalm 25. You may never have studied this psalm, but I guarantee you, you know it because we just just sang a portion of it. It is a psalm that is incredibly well known. It is an acrostic psalm, which means that if you were to look at this psalm in the Hebrew text, you will find that every line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
And this psalm, although it really doesn't have any specific background that we know of, it actually serves as a commentary of sorts on Psalm 1. You may remember Psalm 1. It's the doorway to the psalms, the introductory psalm, if you will. And in this psalm, we have this description of the man who is wise. The psalm says that, or who is blessed, I should say, not wise. The psalm says, blessed is the man who walks not in the path of the ungodly or stands in the way of the sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, the psalmist says. He will be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. Whatever he does, he'll prosper and his leaf will never wither. He then contrasts it with the ungodly and he says the ungodly... They're not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. But notice the psalmist in that psalm, he is describing the, he is describing the fact that if a person really wants to live a life that is blessed, a life that is good, a life that is abundant, to use the language of John chapter 10 and verse number 10, then that is a person whose life is going to be dedicated to walking not in the paths of the ungodly, but rather in the paths of righteousness, meditating, thinking about, and contemplating, and applying God's word day and night. That's the blessed man. But then Psalm 25 adds to that by saying, listen, when you make the decision to walk in the counsels and the way of God, when you make the decision to pattern your life after his will, you should recognize that that life, it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be difficult. You should recognize that there are going to be times where living a righteous life is going to mean that you are discouraged. You should recognize that living a righteous life is one in which there are going to be times that you may be deal with sadness. There are going to be times in living a righteous life in which you're going to have enemies. And those enemies are going to surround you and you may not know exactly what to do in order to deal with them or whatever the circumstances may be that produces them. All of these things are found in Psalm 25. Because David recognized in Psalm 25 that yes, the blessed man is the one who walks in the ways of God, Psalm 1, but that walk is not always going to be easy. And so he knew and he accepted that to be true, but also he knew that he could depend and had to depend on the only one who has the ability to guide him and us through this life, this good and righteous life, which certainly has its ups and downs. Let's look at this psalm in three parts tonight. We have, first of all, verses 1 to 7, which is all about trusting in God. Then we have, in the second place, verses 8 to 14, which tells us and reminds us of why God is worthy of our trust. And then we have a conclusion in verse 15 to 22. Notice with me in Psalm 25, verses 1 to 7, David says, first of all, God, I trust you. He'll break this down in three ways. 
He says in Psalm 25 and verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. So let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. He says, I trust you in verses 1 to 3. He says, I lift up my soul unto you, which is the idea of giving him everything. I'm giving you my whole being. It's a statement of confidence. It is a statement of complete dependence. David is saying, God, I am placing everything that I am and everything that I have and everything that I ever will be, I am placing it into the firm confidence and protection of your hand. Now, I don't know about you, But I would like to think that if I were making that statement, if I were saying to God or to someone else, here is something that is precious to me and I am placing it into your care, that my expectation would then be that I'm not going to be disappointed at the results of placing all of that into his care. That's what David means when he says, let me not be ashamed We're not talking about being embarrassed here, although that is one way in which the word ashamed is used in the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. What we're talking about, the way David is using this word, it has to do with realizing that you've been let down by the one whom you trust, by the one whom you seek. As David cries out to God, he says, God, I trust you, I give you everything, I lift up my soul unto you, so therefore, please do not let me down. Don't disappoint me. Don't let me get to the point in my life where I realize that I made a bad decision in giving you everything. It's the same thing that Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 when he talks about our hope. And he says, hope does not make us ashamed. The idea is that our hope as Christians is a hope that we're never going to reach a time in our lives where we have been let down. Because we we put all of our intention, all of our, our hope upon Christ Jesus. Upon Christ Jesus. David says, I trust you, Psalm 25 and verse number 1. So therefore, don't let me be ashamed. Second, he says, don't let my enemies defeat me. And in fact, he goes on in verse 3 and he says, not just me, but anyone, Lord, who makes the decision to wait upon you and dedicate their lives to you, let them not be, let them not be ashamed but rather those who deal treacherously without cause. David says, I trust you, verses 1 to 3. I give you everything. Please don't let me down. But then look at verse 4 and 5. I trust you, verse 1 to 3, so teach me, verse 4 and verse 5. David says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and on you I will wait all the day long. Notice this point. Confidence, confidence goes with submission. You see, David, in the first three verses, has said, I'm going to willingly submit everything that I have into your hands. And he makes a statement of confidence. 
But the one who places himself into the trust and, to the care, and into the care of God must also have a strong desire to know and to follow the direction of the one in whom he trusts. Imagine taking your most valuable possession, your most treasured possession in this life, walking up to a person in H-E-B that you've never met before or seen before in your life, walking up to them, placing that into their hands and telling them, I trust you, I want you to please manage and be careful with this valuable possession so that when I need it, I can come back and I can take it from you. No one would ever do that. Because we don't place, we don't entrust people with valuable things that we don't know. How then could we possibly expect to go before our God and say as David, I give you everything, I lift up my soul and place it in your hands if we don't even know him and if we're not willing to know him or know anything about him. David says, I trust you, so teach me. Show me, notice the verbiage, show me your ways, verse 4. Teach me your paths, verse 4. Lead me in your truths, teach me. Why, God, why do I want you to show me and teach me and lead me? Here's the reason why. Because you and you alone are the God of my salvation and on you I wait all the day. This idea of teaching or leading is a key theme in this psalm. You'll find it not only in verse 4 and 5, but you'll also find it in verse 8 and 9, and you'll find it again in verse 12. And interestingly enough, some have suggested or supposed that this particular psalm may have such an emphasis upon teaching because teachers may very well have used this psalm as a teaching tool to young Hebrew children. They may have had them memorize this psalm. That's why it's an acrostic psalm and why uh, at various points in the psalm it emphasizes teaching so that children could memorize this and in memorizing it they could learn from an early age that God is the one in whom we must trust. But it begs a question. If we're going to say with David, I trust you, verses 1 to 3, therefore teach me, verse 4 and 5, then the question is, do I really have the desire that is necessary to be taught by God in the first place? David said in Psalm 42 in verse number 1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. There are so many things in this world for which our soul could long after, but does our soul long after God as it should? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 6, Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness as we should? David did. And again, note that the trust of verses 1 to 3 and the desire to learn in verse 4 and 5 are connected. I want to know more about the one in whom I trust. I want to know how I can walk in a way that is pleasing unto him. I want to know how I can live in such a way that I can become more like him because he's the one to whom I have given all things. Now look at verse 6 and 7. I trust you, Lord, verses 1 to 3, so teach me, verse 4 and 5. I want to learn more about you because I trust you, verse 6 and 7, and remember me. 
Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old, verse 6. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Remember me, verse 6 and 7. There are three things that he says in these two verses. Number one, he calls upon God to remember his past actions of mercy and kindness. That's verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. It's the idea of faithful love or covenant love. It's the the kind of love that God shows toward his people. And he says, here's why. Because they are of old. Second, do not remember me according to my sins. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. Verse number 7. I don't know about you, but I've thought about this passage and prayed this passage a number of times throughout my life. Sometimes I think about the sins of my youth and I shudder with embarrassment and shame because I still see some of the people who witnessed the sins of my youth and I hope that they've forgotten about them because unfortunately I have not. But I know that God has. And isn't that the wonderful thing about it? When David says in Psalm 25, verse 6 and 7, I want you to remember your past actions of love and of mercy and kindness, the reason is because he is keenly aware of the sins of his youth. But he is also keenly aware of the fact that God is more than capable because of his mercy and loving kindness of forgiving the sins of his youth and remembering them no more. Look at the end of verse 7. Don't remember me according to what I've done wrong, verse 7, but rather remember me according to who you are, verse 6, according to your mercy. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. There was an old brother in Christ who was uh, laying at home on hospice, knew that his time on earth was almost to an end. And he called an elder to come and visit with him one day. And the reason why he called him is because he said, Brother, I'm laying here in this bed and all I can can think, all I can feel, all I can see is darkness. And he asked him, well, why, why is that the case? You've been faithful. You've served the Lord for years. You're active. Why would you, why would you think and feel and see darkness? And he said, the reason is because I keep thinking back on my youth and I keep thinking back on the sins that I committed and the way that I was and I cannot get those images out of my mind. The elder turned to this psalm and quote and read Psalm 25, verse 6 and 7. And the old brother breathed a sigh of relief. And he said, I feel so much better now because I've been reminded how foolish it is to remember that which God forgets. The prophet would say, In Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 1, as he foretold the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that God has the ability and forgiveness to take our sins and cast them into the depths of the sea. The Lord said, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they'll be as wool. You remember Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 18. This is exactly what David has in mind in Psalm 25, verse 6 and 7. 
I trust you, Psalm 25, verse 1 and 2, so teach me. I want to know more about you. I want to know how I can follow you. I want to know intimately the one whom I trust, and I want to know how I can be like the one whom I trust. I trust you, so teach me and remember me. Not according to who I was in the past, not because of the sins of my youth, but rather remember me in your goodness and remember me in your mercy. That's his prayer. Now with the time we have remaining, let's look at the next two sections. In verse 8 to 14, David then describes how God is worthy of trust. That makes sense, doesn't it? We're talking about trusting someone. We're talking about trusting God with literally everything. Well, why should we trust God? Why is he worthy of this? Look at verse 8. Because he is good and upright. Good and upright is the Lord, the psalmist says in Psalm 25 and verse number 8. The idea really is here that he is upright, excuse me, that he is merciful and he is just. He is a God who is always going to do that which is good, yes, but he's also a God who is always going to practice mercy toward those who come before him. And he is also a God who is going to be just or who is going to be fair. And so now look how David will develop this thought. Because the Lord is good and upright, here's what he's going to do. Number one, he can be trusted to guide us. Verse 8 to 10. He is good and upright, so therefore he teaches sinners. He guides the humble, verse number 9. He teaches the humble his way, and all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. He is good and he is upright so he can be trusted to guide. He'll never steer us in the wrong direction. Second, he can be trusted to be merciful and gracious. Look at verse number 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity because it is great. And then look at verse 12 to 15. He can be trusted to bless. He says, uh, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach the way that he chooses, verse 12. He will dwell in prosperity, verse 13. He will, uh, his descendants will inherit the earth, verse 13. He will, uh, he will um, uh, show them his covenant, those who fear him, verse number 14. Now all of these passages, all of these references are references to blessing. There's guiding in verse 8 to 10. There's mercy and grace and forgiveness in verse number 11. There's teaching and there's dwelling and there's inheriting and there's showing in verse 12 and 13 and 14. But all of these things are based on our willingness to do what he already said in verse 4 and 5. And that's fear and obey and trust and reverence. Look at verse 10. All of the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, but to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Look at verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? That's the one that the Lord is going to teach. Look at verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. David cries to God in the first seven verses. He says, I trust you, so teach me and remember me. But now, in verses 8 and following, he says, Look, the reason why I am trusting God and asking Him to teach me and asking Him to remember me is because He is a God who is worthy of trust. And He is a God who is capable of blessing. 
And he is a God who has made great promises and has the ability to fulfill them, but all of those promises are based upon my willingness to let him teach me and to trust him and to follow him as he would have me to do. Remember, again, this is a bit of a commentary on Psalm 1. There are a number of people, there are a number of things in this world that have asked for our trust. There are a lot of people who are asking for our trust on November, what is it, the 3rd? There are a lot of people who are asking for our trust on November the 3rd. But I don't have to tell you that most of them, if not all of them, aren't really worth an ounce of our trust. And the reason is because they've never proven themselves to be worthy of it. You can go on YouTube and you can look at videos of what some of them say today Find a video of what they said 10 years ago, and they'll be completely contradictory. And then they stand before you and say, trust me. Yeah, right. But that's not the kind of God whom we serve. The kind of God whom we serve is a God who has always proven himself to be faithful and capable and trustworthy. And he's never changed his mind, and he's never lied. He's only required one thing, and one thing only. And that's our willingness to submit to him and walk in his way. And there's no reason for us in this world not to do it. Because he is a God who is worthy of our dependence. Last section, verse 15 to 22. David says in verse 1 to 7, I trust you. He says in verse 8 to 14, I trust you because you are worthy of being trusted. And then he says in verse 15 to 22, I will therefore look to you. I want you to notice with me that there are five things that David mentions in Psalm 25, verse 15 to 22. Because we have a God who is worthy of our trust, here's what God, uh, David says, I will look to him And here are the reasons, here are the times in which I will look to God. Number one, there are times of trouble. He says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The net is a picture of trouble. It's the idea of being caught in a snare or caught in a trap. And he says, I am going to look to you because you will deliver me from that snare. Verse number 16 There are times of loneliness. He says, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me because I am desolate and afflicted. Being desolate and afflicted is the idea of being alone, being betrayed, having having, uh, uh, someone turn your back on you. He says, in those times, I'll turn to you. Then in verse 17, there are those times in which our heart is broken. He says, the troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. We all know what it is to be heartbroken. And David says, those are the times in which I'll look to you because you're the only one, according to verse 8 to 14, who's worth being looked to. Then there's verse 18. What about regret? We all have them to be sure. David says, look on my affliction and my pain And forgive all my sins. I would would venture to guess that unfortunately we all probably 
know also the pain of having done something wrong, whether intentionally or unintentionally, done everything that we could have done within our power to make that right with the person whom we've wronged, only to watch as they refuse to forgive, as they hold a grudge for years, maybe even decades. Most of us probably know what it's like to deal with that. We don't have to deal with that with God. David says, I'm going to come to you because I know that you, you will forgive me of my sins. You will forgive me of my affliction. You will relieve my pain. Then there are times of fear. Look at verse 19 and 20. David says, consider my enemies because they are many and they hate me with a cruel hatred, but keep my soul and deliver me and let me not be ashamed. Let me not be disappointed because I have put my trust in you. He was surrounded by enemies, but he didn't have to fear them because he trusted in a God who was worthy of being trusted. And so therefore he could look to him in these times of great fear. But then look at verse 21 and 22. There's despair. We have trouble, verse 15. We have times of loneliness, verse 16. We have times of having a broken heart, verse 17. Regret, verse 18. Fear, verse 19 and 20. And now we have despair, verse 21 and 22. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I will wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. The idea, of course, is things are difficult. We are in despair, but we wait upon you and we trust you to deliver us. Things and people, they disappoint because they're things and they're people. But God never has, God never does, and God never will. So when we sing this psalm, when we read it and when we think about it, what we ought to think about is a God who is completely faithful and a God who is utterly dependable and trustworthy and a God who desires to bless us and to teach us and to guide us and to, to lead us. But all of that is dependent upon our desire to be taught and to be led and to be guided God is a God who makes life worth living. It's really just up to us to choose whether or not we'll live a worthwhile life. What about you this evening? Is your life worthwhile? Is your life the way that you're currently living it? Is it a life that is abundant? John 10 and verse 10. Is it a life in which there is contentment? Philippians chapter 4, is it a life in which there is joy unspeakable and full of glory? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and following. Is it a life which is characterized by trust in an almighty trustworthy God or is it something altogether different? Is it a life of disappointment and a life of despair and regret and broken hearts? Is it a life of fear and despondency and anxiety, never knowing what's going to come on the morrow and how you're going to deal with it? What kind of life are you living? Leave that question in your hands. We're going to sing the Lord's Invitation song now, and if you have any need at all, we invite you to respond as we come or as we stand and as we sing together.